I want to uh, introduce our speaker tonight. Of course, uh, some just uh, some basic facts. Uh, grew up, uh, he says, a fourth generation of Hartmans who attended the Sayre Church of Christ in western Oklahoma. A long history with the, uh, with the state here. Started attending Quartz Mountain Christian Camp at nine. And he says that he's been a camper, a counselor, a director, and he continues to be involved in that great work today. Um, he's also an alum, uh, Oklahoma Christian University, also Harding Graduate School, and Macquarie, uh, Macquarie University in Sydney. Um, uh, Dale um, and his wife uh, Sheila have lived in Sydney, or have lived in Sydney for about 12 years. Uh, did mission work there, goes back every year. The few people that I know who live in Australia, he also he also knows uh, as well, and he uh, and the church at Eastside has, uh, have continued a, an interest in the work uh, in, that, uh, in that country. Uh, also, um, we're supported by the Eastside Church in 1978 to work there, and I wanted to mention that uh, he returned December 1991, uh, working with the church, currently works as the, or serves as the pulpit minister and one of the elders. If you wondered, you know, are we the only ones that our pulpit minister is also serves as an elder? And the answer to that is no. We also have our sister congregation at Eastside where their pulpit minister, uh, Dale here, also serves uh, as an elder. I like the last thing he mentioned here. He says uh, he has maintained a lifetime interest in seeking to increase the population of heaven. So we can say amen to that church. Amen. Uh, tonight, his title is uh, in our summer series, What the Church Needs to Hear, The Divine Contingency Plan. All I can say about Dale, I have known him for many, many years uh, and have heard him speak uh, on many occasions in different circumstances. And um, my impression has always been that he is always very, very well prepared uh, for the teaching of his lessons. Uh, he's a very serious Bible student. And his lessons are always thought-provoking uh, and deeply spiritual. So I'm looking forward to his, uh, to his lesson tonight and won't take up any more of his time. Brother Dale, please. It's good to be with you. I could take up the whole evening talking about people we've known. The one thing I'll mention is that it was nearly 40 years ago that Sheila and I were working with the church in Nakoma Park. The Roberts lived down Memorial Road, nearly straight north of us. And uh, for any of you who worshipped at the, if I just say the other building, and oftentimes think about this, if I'm driving down 23rd toward Choctaw, we would have occasionally Sunday afternoon activities, and the Choctaw Church it looked like a mini mini bus. It was a little bitty bus. It was kind of round on the back. I don't know if any of you remember. But Russell Wright was a senior in high school, and he would drive the Choctaw Church bus down 23rd, down to Nakoma Park. And I thought, well, wouldn't your insurance company be excited today for you to have a senior in high school driving the church van and driving young people somewhere? And uh, no one thought anything about it, totally dependable, doing what he was supposed to do, but I oftentimes laugh about that and think uh, that day has come and gone. What I'd like to do tonight is actually start on the back page. The first page has the word Jude, and the back page has the word doxology because 
Uh, we're going to end with a doxology, but it will help to kind of have a couple of things in mind. And so when we flip the page at the very end, as we kind of land the lesson, then you'll kind of know where we are and some things about it. Uh, you can tell, and I just saved it as it was, this was a Sunday evening lesson in '09, And the central idea was a doxology gives specific praise to God for either what or who he is as our God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Doxology. And it's just such an important thing. And one of the things that we're going to mention <clears throat> just before we close <clears throat> is that a man, he's not a member of our fellowship, but Fred Craddock had this wonderful comment. He said, it would be, it would be wonderful if Christians would carry a doxology around in their pocket and just would stop at different times of the day and read and reflect about what we have to be thankful to and for and about God. And so there's just three things we'll mention. The person to whom praise is mentioned, God or Father in most cases. The word of praise, doxa, is the original word for glory. That's why we have the word doxology. <clears throat> and then it will include, conclude with some type of an internal formula, something about forever and ever. And I just listed some up here at the top, as, and these are samples, and they're, they're not just exclusive, but that will be a, something we'll refer to at the very end. <clears throat> How many of you work at a, at a business, school, or whatever, uh, where you have fire drills? Okay. Some people think that's a waste of time until you have a fire. How many of your families have a contingency plan for a tornado? You know exactly where you're going to go, what you're going to do, where you're going to be at. And in a very strange way, I, I think of the book of Jude as God's contingency plan, and hopefully this will be clear as we go on. But let me just start by an experience in our life that happened in Australia, and then we'll relate it as we fill out some things from the book of Jude. <clears throat> as Jude writes this book, he says, I wanted to write to you about our common salvation. He had this original intention, but, and we'll just look at this very, very briefly because of time, there has been an infiltration into the church that he writes to. And thank you, sir. Oh, this is like the Lord's Supper. Uh, thank you. I shouldn't say the Lord's Supper on the steroids, but that's just. Thank you. But they are ungodly, and they're involved in leadership. And. We had worked with the church for four years. We left, started a new church, and a family came in that were determined to either have their way or to ruin the church. When we left, the church was headed toward 125, and when this other family left, there were 25 people left in the church. I mean, you just try to get your mind around this. We were close to 125, and when this was all done and they finally left, there was a church there of 25 people. Buckets 
of tears were shed in that process. Do you remember when Paul calls the elders from Ephesus to him at Miletus? He has a very clear warning to them. And what is it? From among yourselves are going to arise who? Wolves in sheep's clothing, and they will not spare the flock. And I just, I literally, and at different times, I'll just have to shake down the chills because very few things can happen that, that are any more damaging to a church than to have to deal with something like this. And <clears throat> my question is, do we have a contingency plan? And part of the reason why the book of Jude is written is to help a church that has had this spiritual infiltration to have a very clear idea, this is what God wants you to do in this particular situation. Now, we all hope that this never happens here. Fair enough? And it's not currently going on or I wouldn't come as a visitor and give a lesson like this. That's a little bit too late. But a few years ago, there was a tornado coming right into downtown Amarillo, I mean, Fort Worth. And I don't know where this guy had been from spiritually, but they interviewed him in, I don't know, 15th floor, 20th floor. But he's in one of these huge buildings, and he looks out, and here's this tornado. And he said, the very first thing that came to my mind is, I'm not ready to die. He wasn't ready. I'll bet you he was ready the next week. Because that, even a, a comment like that tells you, I knew some things in my life I should have been doing that I haven't been doing. And I can just pretty well guarantee you he didn't let that go by to, to be able to live from something like that. And don't just think, well, this is only for things that have to do with a disaster or with a struggle within a church. Because every time we look at something that has a biblical teaching to it, there is always a very practical application to us in terms of things that we can be doing in our lives on a day-to-day basis to have a greater sense of spiritual health. And one of the things that still sticks in my mind, I had a couple of classes with Brother Thomas Warren, and he had this wonderful little statement. He said, every book in the Bible is perfect for the reason that God gave it. And one of the injustices of this little bitty book tucked just before the book of Revelation is that some people have only read the the book to get one verse to then go out and crusade against everyone in the church for things they don't agree with. And I would submit they have never read all of the book to come up with that conclusion. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, God bless you. Good for you. Now, who is Jude? And I apologize that Jesus is small because he obviously should be capital print. I believe Jude, and I'm going to use the term half-brother, I believe both James and Jude are half-brothers of Jesus. Now, I always have something like this to remember something, but in Mark chapter 6, there is an account of at least, as a minimum, six half-siblings of Jesus. And where am I going from? He's the only one that is conceived by the Holy Spirit, but they're going to share the same mother. And so when you read Mark chapter 6 and you start in verse 3, then there will be a listing that's James, Joseph, Judas, and Simeon. And then, that's four, and then the word sisters, plural, is used. You see where I'm at? We got four brothers, and then the term sisters is used. 
So as a minimum, we're going to have six. We could have seven, eight, or nine. We're not told how many girls are in the family, but we're told there are four boys and sisters. And so in Mark chapter 6, then we have the listing of at least six of Jesus' siblings. And when Jude opens this little letter, then all that he says is, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. Uh, Here's our word slave. And I oftentimes tell people, many of you know my younger brother, and uh, when people don't know that we're brothers, I tell them I'm the older, stable brother. And... uh, Those of us who have the joy of having a younger brother who's born on the sunny side of the street know what I'm talking about. But I've told people, if my brother was Jesus Christ, it would be really hard as a family member to come to faith. Because after all, he's my brother. And isn't this amazing? I think the book of James and the book of Jude are written by our Lord's half-brothers. Some don't. I happen to think that. And he just says, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Now, we know James, the brother of John, is beheaded in the Gospel of Acts. And then when you come to chapter 15, James, as the pillar of the church, is described there. And the whole early church knew who James was. Uh, We were living in Memphis, Tennessee, when Elvis died. And not one time in the headline of a paper did I ever see the word Presley. All that was said is, either the king is dead or Elvis is dead, and everybody knew who he was. And so in the early church, when Jude says, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ, and I'm a brother of James, everyone would go, oh, okay, family tree. We know who you are. And why does he write, and I want you to look down in verse 4 if you have your New Testament, certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. Do you see where my word infiltration comes from? And it's plural. Certain men have crept in, slipped in among you, and they are godless. Now, an entire lesson can be given on all of the dimension of their ungodliness, and there's over a dozen things mentioned in these next few verses about how ungodly they are. But let me tell you something from personal experience. These people are all just as smooth as they can be. These people are very personable. These people are very warm. These people are very friendly. These people go around cultivating people. Not for good purposes, but they go around cultivating people. And as my sister-in-law Nancy says, she says, when you've dealt with a few of them after a while then you can tell them when they first step foot out of the car in the parking lot. And they come in very warm and very friendly, and we're here to help people, and we're here to serve people, and all this other stuff. But these godless people have slipped into the church, and the only thing that we'll notice on this one, they change the grace of our God into a license for immorality. And I just start shuddering. You can nearly justify anything under the title of grace. And then he says they deny our Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. 
And you keep reading through this list and, and go all the way down to verse 18 and 19. And you're going to have a mention again that these are scoffers and they follow their ungodly desires. And for our time tonight, I just want you to notice, and there's a big parenthesis here, in the book of Jude, in the middle part of the book, is this description, and there's a, a very clear parallel in Second Peter chapter 2, but there's a huge description of these men, and I have a parenthesis in my head and in my hands. The first one starts with they're godless, and then he says they're ungodly, and then he'll give you 12 different descriptions of what he means by either godless or ungodly. Here are people with the cloak of Christianity who do not have the love of the Lord in their heart. Now, it's just, it's such a tragic thing. And like I said, because of time, we won't be able to do any more. I'd encourage you to look at it. Their descriptions often come in triplets, three different types of descriptions, three different examples. When I think of Hebrews 11, I think of the Hall of Faith. And when I think of the book of Jude, the middle part, I think of the hall of shame. Here are people that have the outward form of godliness, but inwardly it's not there. Now, what is the church to do? And the one thing I just want to notice about this is that the first three verses and the last seven verses of Jude, which we're going to spend most of our time tonight are unique to Jude compared to all the verses that overlap from Second Peter. And I'm just going to suggest when you read through the book of Jude and then you come to understand the seriousness of the situation because the spiritual health of an entire church is in peril. And let me just go ahead and say this, and this is, I can't even hardly say this, but I, it's, it's true. If you have something like this happen, there are going to be casualties. I, I don't know how else to say it, but just to say it like that. If I come in and I become a leader of this church and then after a period of time you find out that all of these things that are going on in the book of Jude are true of me and I'm a leader in your church, I have your phone book. I know all of these people. I've been going around talking to people it becomes necessary to disfellowship me, there will be a price that you'll have to pay to do that. However, if you come to that realization and you don't do it, the casualties will rise. If I go to a doctor and he says, well, I thought six months ago you might have a spot on your lung, but since I'm your friend, I didn't want to tell you that in case we had to make a major treatment on it. He's not my friend. If I've got a spot on my lung tomorrow, let's start doing something about it. And this is what happens in this case, and we're reluctant to do that as brothers and sisters in Christ. But that's why this book is so important, because the contingency plan says there are certain things that you need to put in gear as soon as you recognize this is going on. And the most amazing thing is, is that while something's going to have to be done with these false teachers, these godless people... The main emphasis in Jude and in Second Peter is that God's going to deal with them. But notice what we're to do. Number one, we're to know who we are. And then we'll see down to number two, we're to know what to do. There are specific verses. And then number three, we're to be reminded, now this is where we're going. Don't lose sight of this. 
Now look at number one. When you open this marvelous little letter, and to me it's just amazing how 25 verses can just give you something to think about for, for the longest time. Jude says, to those who have been called is the first one. The second, those who are loved by God. And those who are kept. And so I put those in bold. We are, as Christians, we are the people who are called. We are the people who are loved. And we are the people who are kept. Now, we get a little bit, I'm lost for a word here. We, we get a little bit shy about the word called sometimes because sometimes the word is used by some religious friends in an unbiblical way. But, for example, in, to the Thessalonians, Paul said, you are called by the gospel. And isn't that true? If someone's not a child of God, someone has talked with them and sat down with them, and they hear the gospel message And the same call that was given in Acts chapter 2, whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And we're called by the truth that's in the gospel. And it will be our hearts that will determine how we respond to that. You know, um, Bonnie, how many years ago did you all meet the Hans? Did you meet the Hans? 19? Yeah. Bonnie was walking her dog in the park there in Midway City. And met this wonderful couple, uh, Kevin and Heather Hahn, who were working as interns with us. And were you both walking dogs? And they met each other and got to talking and whatever. Anyway, as they talked with her a little bit, and Bonnie wasn't a New Testament Christian at that time. But as we got to talking with her, she said, you know, I have been looking for a church leadership to submit to and place myself in authority under. In 40 years, I've never met a person who's not a member of the church who's saying, I'm looking for someone to submit to and to place myself under their spiritual authority. You ever had that happen? You ever had that happen? I've never had that happen. But she was looking for truth. And when she heard the truth, the truth called her to become a Christian. I last lady I studied with was a little bit older lady. She was visiting because of a friend. And... Uh, I always ask them very politely, how did you become a Christian? And she says, at 14 years old, I was saved in the cotton field. And a little bit of the version, I accepted Jesus in my heart, and I had this warm feeling, and God came in, and I knew I was saved when I was out in the cotton field. So we go through, and we go through the examples of conversion and the other stuff, and we go about the cross and the need to be baptized, and she stopped kind of interacting and I said talk what's going on talk to me and she said I've never seen this before and as we left she said can you just give me a couple of days to think about this because she said I've read my bible all my life and I've never seen that and three days later she called and she said I need to be baptized I did very little other than show her this is what scripture says and what happens she was called by the gospel When we're having trouble in a church, it's easy to forget how we got in the church in the first place. Look at the second one. We're loved. And and this is so important. We're loved by God the Father. They are referred to in some translations as either the beloved or dear friends. 
And do you remember our Lord in the early chapters there of Matthew is in the waters of the Jordan River and he's dripping wet because of all things we're going to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. And what happens? The spirit descends in the form of a dove and what does the father say about that one right there? This is my beloved son and it's the word agape with the ending on it to give a a direction that's who we are we're the beloved ones i know this is very childish but um, those of us who watch the smothers brothers remember one of them saying mother always loved you best And wherever we came from, whether we were loved or not loved in our physical family, when we become a child of God, we have been loved with a love from eternity that's beyond comprehension. And that also is easy to forget. Look at the third one. Kept. And the first one, there's two different words. The one that's here in verse 1 Uh, means to preserve something. It means to keep something unharmed. Um, The last time our family did this, we started very, very early on a Saturday, but we processed three steers and seven hogs on one day, and 30 of us worked from sunup, and we had uh, breakfast sausage that night, and we worked all day long to process three calves and seven hogs. And then our granddad had a smoke room, and if you wanted, then you could put your ham or your bacon or whatever in the room, and what does the smoke do? Marty? It preserves it. And so the first kept, and there's six of these in the little book of Jude, the first kept is to remind us we're preserved in Jesus. And you'll see kept, 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 But in verse 24, it will be kept in our translations. But this one has the the idea to guard safely. Paul in Acts 28, verse 16, is going to have a guard with him while he's there. But it still helps us in our English translations to keep hearing the word kept, 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 because. And let me just say it this way. Leon Dennis does a lot of marriage counseling at the church in Norman and now that he's retired more from public teaching uh, he does two full days of this but he has a philosophy he said if a couple are having severe marital problems unless we can administer first aid they can bleed to death before they get to a real counselor and that's true And if we have had a leader or leaders in the church and it becomes obvious finally what's going on and what their true colors are and this is not a shepherd but this is actually a wolf in sheep's clothing, it's easy for all three of these things to go out the window because in the same way that a a couple who are having trouble can, can forget why they ever fell in love in the first place. And Sister North, help me, uh, Stafford and Joanne, Joanne has this wonderful expression that she's used in ladies' classes. She says, ladies, marriage is what holds us together while we, well, our commitment to marriage is what holds us together while through the years we fall in and out of love with each other. 
we need to have that same bond to our Lord. Because things are not always going to be as good as they are at some times, but we need to remind ourselves we're called, we're loved, and we're kept. Now, here's the heart of what I want to look at tonight because this is not only good for a contingency situation of a time of conflict. To my mind, this is just good all the time. And notice these. What are we to do? When you look at the, and I'm not going to go into participles and verb tense and everything. We're just going to stay in English. But let me submit this to you. The heart of what goes on when you come down to verse 20 is the thought, keep yourselves in the love of God. The other admonitions are going to describe how you do that. And I'll just leave it at that. And we can, I can talk to you about that on a separate basis. It's not appropriate in our class to do that. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Now let me remind you of something. The only person that can cause you to leave the Lord or leave the church is you. And we sometimes hear someone lamely say about something, oh, he made me so angry. Well, I can also choose not to get angry. And I know people provoke us. I'm not denying that. I can choose not to get angry. It's easier to project my emotions on that person and say, oh, he or she did this. And if you've been in the church, we've all talked with people who can no longer meet in a church that has, and you fill in the blank, hypocrites in it, or I can't meet in a church, and da-da-da-da-da-da, and they feel justified in leaving same thing happens in marriages. I don't know how to say this other than just try to say it like this. I would like to encourage you in your families, in your marriages, to make a commitment. I'm not leaving the church. We can do that. I am not leaving the church. And people who haven't been at Eastside say, how does it work having an elder who's a minister? And I says, well, about every couple of years I go to the elders and say, fellas, if you feel like I need to leave or we have someone else, then I'll be the first one to help you get someone to come in here because we don't have to fuss. We don't have to leave mad at each other. If you feel like it's good for the church for us to make a change, let me help you do that. If I can't play second base for somebody, I can probably play left field for somebody else. But I'm not going to leave the church over whether or not they like me or not. I'm not going to leave the church on somebody says something about me. And if you give public lessons, you can see the steam coming out of their ears before they get to you. And sometimes I say, uh, do you want to shoot me in the front? Do you want to shoot me in the back? And sometimes on the way home, Sheila will say, and I'm sure Mike never has this happen, but Sheila will say, uh, you won't believe what you said today. You know, you're thinking about what's coming. You're trying to figure things out. You have no idea of all the stuff that happens in a church on Sunday morning. And you're trying to remember what you're supposed to say and everything else. And you can get your tongue twisted. And someone will come up and will correct me. And I tell them, look, I never try to mispronounce the English language. But I did grow up in a cotton field. And I just do the best that I can. And sometimes it just doesn't come together well. But... If someone comes and says, I just think you're the sorriest preacher that I've ever heard, I just tell them, you know, you're probably right. Because if that's what they think, I'm not going to change their mind. And friends, 
just because somebody either doesn't like us or says something about us, I've decided I'm not leaving the church over that. It's just not going to happen. When we were in Australia, we started a new congregation, and people were baptized. And when I say all hours of the day and night, literally, and our kids were small, too small to leave at home, and all of our children would be, and we Kent had a swimming pool in his backyard, and that was our baptistry. And we'd been there at 2 o'clock in the morning. We'd been there at 6 o'clock in the morning, on and on. And when we got through, we would always get in a circle, and we would sing, I have decided to do what? Follow Jesus. And these little four-year-old and five-year-old and six-year-old blonde-headed kids would just sing at the top of their lungs, and we're trying to say, shh, it's 2 o'clock in the morning. But they didn't care because this said something that was right here. Now, had they been baptized yet? Oh, no. But they had a really clear commitment. I have decided to follow Jesus. And Sheila had this wonderful description because they saw so many people baptized. They're thinking, do I need to do this? And Sheila would say, now, matey, in Luke's 10, and he's getting worried about this. And she said, now, matey, as a child, you're, and she would spell your S-A-F-E. Because Jesus said, let the little children come to me. And if something happens to you, you're safe. But as you get older and you understand what sin is and you know what to do, then you will need to be baptized to be S-A-V-E-D. And that helped him as a little guy. But there was a clear commitment, I have decided to follow Jesus. And we need to renew that commitment. And Jude says, keep yourselves in the love of God. And I've just made a commitment, no different than I said to her, till death do us part. I've said the same thing to my Lord in the waters of baptism, and no one in the church or no critic or no one else is going to cause me to leave the Lord's church. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Number one under that is build yourselves up in the most holy faith. Building is a house term. Uh, Building a house, constructing. And look at this. The love of God, your holy faith, pray in the Holy Spirit, and then wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus unto eternal life. There are those who are leaving in verse 22. Be merciful to those who doubt. And see, that's so so critical. Because there will be people who will leave. You, you just, and like I said, this is, part of this is heartbreaking for me to even do. But, but if you've gone and talked to someone who for whatever reason is going to leave the Lord or going to leave the church, uh, I have gone outside and before I got to the car I have just wept. They were the children of God and for some trivial reason are throwing their eternal salvation away. And how are they ever going to answer to God in the day of judgment? A haunting verse. It would have been better for them to have never heard than to have heard the gospel and to turn away. And of truth, the proverb is fulfilled, and that's some of the grossest things in the Bible, which we'll leave out. But you know the, the, the part there. Be merciful 
Try to save them, show mercy, hate the garment that's spotted by flesh. The third thing is, know who you are, know what to do. And let me just say one last thing on number two. Uh, These are plural. Okay. Mike has probably got this by now, but we who are Midwestern part Southerners understand the word y'all. Okay. And I'm sorry, you guys doesn't do the same thing. Uh, Y'all. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Sorry, what would y'all say in Canada? Plural you. A plural you, instead of y'all, what would you say in Canada? A? A? See? (laughs) That doesn't do either. Nothing is quite like y'all. These are plural. Leaders, elders, families, build yourselves up. We start a church bodybuilding program. We emphasize prayer. We wait for Jesus. And notice you have God, the Spirit, and Jesus involved in that. But the final one is know where you're going. Here's the doxology. And actually the purpose for even our whole lesson is to put this verse, verses in your heart, because as he closes, he says, to him who is able to keep you from falling. My dad died in July the 5th of 09, and for the last three months, one of us three children were with him 24 hours a day. He had been a jockey. He worked 16 hours a day and on and on. But we lost our balance the last little bit. And we've all fallen at one time or another, but it's really frustrating when you just have lost your balance. Had an ear infection and the world's going round and round and you have to lay down. And I read this and I think, regardless of my physical strength or lack of it, to him who is able to keep you from falling. What a blessing. And to present you before his glorious presence, blameless or spotless, without blemish. Has there ever been an Avon commercial that said, ladies, you look really good as you are. You don't need any cosmetics. It'll never happen. Whatever the defects are, the blood of Jesus will cover. We're kept from falling. We will be presented before his glorious presence with no blemishes, no spot. And I did this last part at the men's retreat at Camp Rock Creek with exceeding joy. There's just, this is like a a waterfall, like a, a water fountain. This is like fireworks. We have no idea of how to anticipate the joy that we're going to have on the other side. And then how does it go? To the only God, our Savior, and that's who he is. He's our Savior. And there's four of them, be glory, dominion, majesty, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord, now and forever and ever. Amen. So let's do these last ones very quickly and we're done. I've already mentioned this one. Every book in the Bible is perfect for the reason that it was given. And I would suggest here is God's contingency plan for what to do if we're in a church and we have difficulty. The things that we're to do are good to do all the time. We don't have to wait for difficulty. And especially the ones under number two. Number two, during a crisis, I can spend all of my time on the sick and neglect to strengthen the healthy. Have you seen a family that has a child who has a major illness or something and the other two children, not in, we don't ever do this intentionally, 
But the other two children virtually get neglected because we're so invested in trying to keep this one alive and everything else. And we need to learn that when we're going through difficulty, we can spend all of our time with those who are unhappy and disillusioned and who are sick. And when they leave, we're left with some people who aren't as healthy as they can be because we've neglected them because we've taken so much time with those who are sick. We need to pray for wisdom about that one. Number three, during a crisis, it's harder to see the good or how God is working at the time. And I have a, my fingers are crooked. That's just how I was made. But I can, I can do it like this and keep them together. And I have this philosophy that says, if God and I aren't like this, I know who moved. And it's not him. Keep yourselves in the love of God. That's our part all the way through. And then I mentioned this, it would be good for us to carry a doxology in our pocket. Did anyone in here know C.E. McGoy? I know Dayton did. Uh, Brother McGoy was just, he did gospel meetings, uh, knew volumes of scripture by memory, baptized thousands of people, never had a debate. He was too, you'd probably say kind to have a debate. And he taught and baptized people everywhere. The last days of his life, he lived across from Oklahoma Christian where Brother Baird had lived. And my brother Kent lived with the McGoys. And he was losing his mind. Uh, they'd worked in Honolulu for a while, and he would wake up, and they would be, you know, trying to get stuff done. And he would be working on lessons and all this stuff. And Kent would say, I would come in to see him, and Kent would say it was just exactly the same conversation. Kent, isn't it a good day? And Kent would say, yes, Brother McGoy, it's a good day. And then he would say, Kent, hasn't God been good to us? And Kent would say, yes. And then he would say, Kent, doesn't Sister McGoy take such good care of us? And he would go out of the room and come back. And Kent said, we had that same conversation five times a day sometimes. And he never could remember what was going on. But Kent said, when he lost his mind is when we found out what had been on his mind all along. And what was on his mind? It's a good day. God's been good to us. And Sister McGoy takes such good care of us. Just before he died, his son, and there may have been two, but son or sons, came to see him. He hadn't known who he is for days, hasn't known where he's at, but he does know God's good. He knows it's a good day, and he knows Sister McGoy takes good care of them. And just before he died... Brother McGoy said to his sons, Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence blameless with exceeding joy. To the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all time now and forevermore. And he quoted Jude 24 and 25 as one of the last things he told his sons before he died. Wouldn't it be amazing if like he, if we lose our minds, we would find out what had been on our minds all along.